The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. The Enviro Show it is with me, Nancy Richards. It's our dedicated green hour here on SAFM. Team today, we've got Kim Winter, we've got Lance Andrews, and we have you. And if you'd like to join us, you're welcome. It's 0892102010. If you'd like to call in and if you'd like to find us and find all the details that we all hear about on the show today, check our Facebook page, which is The Enviro Show on SAFM. Well, let me tell you what we've got lined up on the menu today. We're going to be hearing about a campaign called My Green Home. And the idea is to get one family to commit entirely to lowering their carbon footprint. Sounds easy, or maybe not. Well, leading by example is CEO of Cape Town Partnership, Bulelwa Makalima Ngawena. And um, she's going to be, uh, we'll get her on the line, she's going to be telling us how it's going for her. Then we'll also be, uh, there's been a lot of focus on tourism recently. You might uh, know that in Darba it's been happening in Durban, here in Cape Town, the world travel market. And I went along there and I heard all about Botswana as a deeply committed eco-destination, so we'll be catching up on that one. And then in our forage feature, the inside story on bananas. And at the Centre for Alternative Energy at the Vol University of Technology, they're looking at how to cope when you're very poor and you live off the grid. How do you get light into your life? And on a similar subject in our green goodie feature tonight, a solar farm in Da'ar directly benefiting their surrounding community. So that's what we've got in the lineup, and I uh, hope you're going to stay with us through until 10 o'clock. Just a quickie, a little bit of eco info here. If you have got some sort of project going that's uh, particularly green, entries are now open for the annual Ecologic Awards, and they're hosted, as you probably remember. If you're a greenie, you will have heard about them by the Enviropedia, and that's in association with SABC3. Um, they look to honour individuals or organisations making a real difference in creating more ecological and sustainable world that we, for us to live in. The closing date is June the 15th, so there's not a whole lot of time. And uh, let me just give you a quick uh, rundown. There's a whole lot of different categories. There are, in fact, 13, lucky for some, different categories. There's the Water Conservation, Energy Saving, Biodiversity, Youth Award, Eco Angel Award, Eco Warrior Award, and so the list goes on. But if you'd like to find out more and enter yourself into those awards, check the site. It's www.enviropedia.com, enviropedia.com forward slash Ecologic Awards. We'll try and put that up on our Facebook page. Um, so that's, uh, that's if you want to check that out, have a look. And if you want to send your uh, entry in directly, you can email them at networking at enviropedia.com. Networking at enviropedia.com. You're listening to The Enviro Show. The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. We're going to be hearing in a minute about uh, from uh, CEO of Cape Town Partnership, Bolelwa Ngawana, and she is taking part in the My Green Home campaign. But that's Cape Town. But before we get to Cape Town, as I just mentioned, lots and lots of tourism been going on in South Africa just recently, or focus on tourism. There was a tourist in Darbar in Durban, world traffic market, travel market here in Cape Town. Well, I went along there and I stopped off at the Botswana stand and I had a chat to Dorcas Willio of Mismundo. And I asked her if traditionally Botswana was one of the really, really green eco-destinations. Oh, you are absolutely right. Uh, the government of Botswana, the Ministry of Environment, is very strict with the building requirements and the lodge requirements of what happens inside the game parks as a whole. They have actually requirements on paper. So when you go there and you apply for your travel or your tourism license and you want to make a lodge, 
or any kind of building within the parks and in this kind of industry, they give you the requirements and they are very strict about it. So Botswana is one of those countries which are very on top of their game when it comes to ecotourism and conservation. What are some of those regulations? For example, the lodges are strictly to be built of canvas, biodegradable and wood. There's no concrete, no uh, building blocks which are allowed inside the game parks and in the safari lodges. So all of them are very eco-friendly. There's no electricity there in the um, safaris camps. So what we have is we have solar-powered uh, lights and when it's raining we have our low emission generators as backup but only as backup so 90% of the time you'd say they use solar power for heating and for lighting. Has it always been the case or are these new regulations? No it has always been the case all the camps in Botswana they are built in such a way that they are we don't want a permanent setup in the, in the camp because in case of the flood, in, t in case of huge elephant migrations for example, that would be a disaster. Uh, so we need to have camps which are, which would be easily removable if it was necessary for the well-being of the environment or of the animals. And the camps in Botswana are actually unfenced. All of them are unfenced and that's also a requirement because we don't want to mess around with the migration routes of the animals also with their breeding and mating seasons. So we want them to have 100% freedom of movement back to their ancestral lands, back to their waterholes and everything. And so this also helped the parks and the lodges in Botswana to have a nice amicable relationship with the wildlife. So it's very rare that animals will come and attack a camp in, in the bush in Botswana because we don't infringe on their paths and we give them right of way, so to speak. I'm sure they're appreciative, but they might not always necessarily know that. And you talk about elephant migration, and I mean, as far as I know, elephant migration paths are fairly um, well established and they're not likely to change. But, you know, I'm just thinking in terms of the security um, from the animal's point of view, or at least from the human being's point of view, yeah. are they quite safe? Uh, they're quite safe. And uh, I've had, we have had, uh, where, because we have some seasonal campsites where three times of the year they're closed and then we only use them for nine months of the year and some of them have those campsites have got fruit trees and those are popular visit sites especially for the elephants for the baboons and for the monkeys and we've had an experience where they came into the camp and everybody was just sitting around just quiet and they walked right past us went to the marula tree started eating uh, they brushed against one of the tents um, but that was about as wild as it got. But of course we can't deny that there could be possible friction between animals and humans. Uh, but normally in the camps, it, it rarely happens. Animals will attack, okay, for example, let me say hippos. They will attack you if you're in a boat and you're coming right into their territories. So the guides are trained to spot the animals and then take a diversion so that they don't threaten the animals. Because when they are threatened in their own turf, they will surely attack. And then the other thing that we know is that what causes elephant and human conflict is the farms. Because when animals are trying to go down, for example, down to the river, like in the Chobe, there are lots of farms. And some of these farms don't even have permits to be there. You know, they just see a vacant area and they just come and set up there, not knowing that 
um, you know, elephants do pass here or buffaloes pass here, for example, and then that causes that causes the friction. Usually, it's you know when people are ignorant and they don't know the history of this place, and then they come and settle there, and then that causes that causes the friction. Most of the time, the animals are very harmless. They're just inquisitive. You know, they'll sniff around, and if it's just quiet, they'll just walk along and go to their to their wherever they were going. Let me say, yeah. What about water? Uh, is it is it scarce because uh, animals, you know, in, if they're in need of water, human beings likewise, if they're in need of water, people can get, everybody can get quite desperate. Is there water plentiful? Botswana is a very arid area, so it's we don't have enough water, even for the animals. In fact, the government has made an initiative to make water pumps inside some of the parks where there's no natural water. The only place where we have natural water occurring, would say, is in the Okavango Delta, and in the Chobe, and then there's one seasonal flood that comes through Makarikari area. But most of the year, it's all parched dry, and this is what causes the movement of the animals from the south to the north and the north to the south as they are trying to follow the path of the water. So mainly the animals would rely on the rains, which come late November, December, January, right up to March. We have good rains in that time, and then they have nice uh, grazing and water areas then during the rest of the year the government would have to pump water into the man-made water holes in the parks and there are some of the lodges which also support this and they also pump water into some of their man-made water holes so that animals would drink but between humans and animals uh, we don't compete for water because we consume a different kind of water than they do yeah uh, talking of consumption, I would imagine that uh, food is quite a big issue that everything would need to be transported in. So quite a lot of four by fours coming and going, getting, is, is, that, uh, is that in any way harmful? Uh, most of the food, because we want to reduce the movement of vehicles in the, in the parks, what the lodges would do is that they would make a big order for dry food and have it transported in a truck so that it just goes once with one big load. And then for the fresh vegetables and the fruits, they would make um, maybe two or three days. Every two or three days, they would make an order, and that would come in with a charter flight. And normally, when clients are coming in, the supply would probably be in the same flight or a flight before the clients actually arrive. Usually, they would order food on a demand basis. If there's no demand for the food, they won't order anything. Uh, but yeah, we do have you know a, a large number of movement in the area. Uh, my concern really is about the self-drives, the people who drive their own vehicles um, because they come in there, they run around, you know, they're driving all over the parks, and sometimes they go off the track, they get into the undesignated areas and disturbing the whole fauna and flora of the area and. They're becoming a lot more these days. You'll see one car with maybe two people, then another one behind them with two people and another one behind them. And it's all the family when they all could have just gone in one vehicle, which would have been normal with a normal group safari. But you'll find when people like people want to have their own cars. And um, so the self-drives, I find them to be a little bit more destructive than the traditional safari vehicles. And Botswana is very dependent on its, uh, and rightly so, very dependent on its tourism. Is there an increasing number of people coming who are very eco-conscious, I mean eco-tourists? Yes, we do have a large growing number of uh, eco-tourists. 
and a lot of them want to find out what kind of electricity do you use there, what kind of tents do you have, and what kind of food are you eating, and are you benefiting the environment, are you benefiting the communities, and these are questions that they do raise before they come, and they also want to know what they can do before they come to help the communities, because we also not only worry about the environment, but we also worry about the, you know, the scourge of HIV and AIDS, because we're now having a new generation of orphans because of the, the disease killing of their parents. So some of the, the tourists who do come, they want to be able to help even the, the communities and help um, these orphan centers. And presumably you encourage that. I mean, you know, it's one thing to be benefiting the animals in as much as awareness helps people uh, appreciate what is required, but also to benefit the, the local communities on a larger scale. Yeah, that's very, yeah, that's very good as we also encourage it a lot. Um, some of the toys, if the safari finishes earlier than the scheduled flight, we do take the clients into the village and they can visit some of these centers. Uh, there's also a center for disabled people and there's also a place for uh, unemployed women who make baskets and, and other little artifacts and crafts where people can buy and we also take them to the Bushmen area where the Bushmen people live so that we can sensitize them about the cultural differences of what is uh, what the Bushmen do and what the other people do and you know we just give them a full round experience of the whole country. Um, what about training up the local people? I mean, are they encouraged to uh, be part of the tourism industry uh, from an environmental point of view? Well, yes, we do try to uh, educate and encourage the local people to take care of their own environment. The government and the Ministry of Education and the players in the tourism industry, they take a lot of interest in educating, especially farmers, not to shoot the animals because they like to shoot the wild dogs, they shoot the lions because they, they feel that they're eating their cattle or their goats. We try and help them to find ways to cope with the elephants, for example. Instead of shooting them, they can plant chili plants around their farms and this actually annoys the elephants and they, they stay away from the farms. And we also teach the young children about the animals that their careers in tourism, when they grow up, they can also be guardians of the environment. There are also recycling initiatives in town. There's a small women's group that teaches women to recycle paper and make crafts out of it, to recycle plastic and try and make, you know, attractive little accessories and even cans they can make, photo frames and other interesting little things. So there is like a community empowerment but it's on a very small scale because we also like the, the, the technology and you know what it takes to do some of these things but I would say that the efforts are very admirable. Well there you go, it's certainly all happening in Botswana by the sounds of it. That was Dorcas Wellio. She's with a company called Ms Mundo and if they sort of whetted your appetite for maybe a visit to... It sounded pretty hectic there because that was the world travel market but Botswana, I understand, is really, really calm and cool and very beautiful and very green. So if you'd like to find out more, check their website which is Ms Mundo, which is M-I-Z-M-U-N-D-O.com, MsMundo.com. Well, next up, we are moving back to Cape Town because we do, in fact, have Bulelwa and Gawana on the 
on the line, and uh, Bolelwa is, in fact, the CEO of Cape Town Partnership, but she's also the lucky lady who has been chosen to be part of the My Green Home campaign, which means uh, that they're going to turn the, the family home is going to become really, really green. And how many of us can say that we have a really green home? Most of us do the odd bit of recycling here or there, but really, really green? Well, who knows? And what does that mean? We have Bolelwa on the line to tell us all about it. Hi, Bolelwa. Hi, Nancy. So, a green home, does this fill you with horror, or are you very excited about it? <laughs> Sounds quite uh, stressful. I mean, in your intro, you said we felt we were the lucky family. We really feel very lucky that mm. we've been able to have this journey. Um, and it's a very important journey for any family in South Africa, but I also think it's particularly important for us as a family, because for a while we've been stuck on how do we become green as a, as a, as a, as a household. We've got all the theory, but we needed practical support to be able to turn theory into action. And what my green home has afforded us an opportunity to do is to be able to do exactly that. Yes, they're afforded you and they're forcing you into it because you're going to be quite under the green spotlight, I understand, over the next little while. Oh, yes, we are. So I mean, I, I was having coffee the other day at a restaurant and one of the waitresses came to me and said, how far are you from your goal, your green goal? <laughs> <laughs> and I no, realized please. there's nowhere to hide right now. Yeah. Actually, I think that in itself is what we needed because one of the things, about, it's, like, it's like making a New, Year resolution, New Year's resolution. If there is no one who's, or a system around you that allows you to actually stick to those resolutions, you end up kind of you know, reneging on them. The fact that this journey is so public and that we've made such a public commitment as a family is very important because it allows us not to only commit to it, but it also allows us to know that um, it's not just about us as in the Ngebana family. It's also about other families in South Africa mm. who are watching us and wanting to be able to learn from our journey. Yes, absolutely. And be able to do it themselves. And then you're going to be able to walk the talk because once you've done it and you know that it works and you know that it can be done, you can pass on the, the information to others. But what does it actually mean, My Green Home? It's a, it's a sort of a partnership project. Yes. You are required to do what? Okay, the journey started by um, us being aware that there was a call for families all over South Africa to submit applications to be part of the Migraine Home Project. And uh, it was basically taking a, a high, uh, not high income, I would say middle to high income type family mm. who's a high consumer already, um, who is keen to turn their family into a green home but do not know how. So we submitted an application as a family, understanding that this would mean that we would then be supported in being able to take our, our home, which we've lived in for about 12 years now, from where it is currently at to a place where we can be proud of it, saying that it's actually a green home. So the journey started with submitting that application. Um, it, uh, as I say, it was a national competition. And after uh, uh, we were shortlisted, um, there was a further uh, intense period of coming to actually assess the family, assess the home, so that the Green Buildings Council can then, um, South Africa can then make a decision on which family was appropriate. And so we were selected. So the first phase of this journey was business as usual, but based on the installation of systems within the household, which can allow us to be able to quantify our current consumption. So in other words, in a very simple way, is to establish a baseline. So for the first month, we were just behaving normally, mm -hmm. um, no switching on of the life, which we don't normally switch them. If you are, which is what my kids tend to do, you know, switch on the TV as background noise and then go off and do something else and not actually watch the TV, not thinking that it's actually consuming energy, etc. So we did that for the first month, which established our baseline. 
And then we went through an intense period of training as a family on saying this is what your behavior is and this exhibits in these kind of consumption behavioral issues. This is how you consume your energy, this is how you consume your water, etc., etc. And so having understood the bigger context, which is the environmental context, let me, let me change context and what are the big issues that the, the, the earth is facing for that matter and how much our small contribution in the family can actually add to that. And then we then had practical training at home to say this is what you do, this is how you are able to establish your baseline. All of this information is actually available mm. on the Green Buildings website, which is mygreenhomesa.co.za, where you can, as a family yourself, be able to sit down and say this is how I calculate my baseline. And once we've gone through that, we then went to a, 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 a second phase where it was changed behavior and no intervention of any nature, apart from the fact that we as a family, we are now changing our own behavior to be able to show that you can actually intervene in your own um, 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 energy consumption mm-hmm. environment to mitigate what you're already doing. So we were much more uh, circumspect about how, when we switch the lights on, when we switch the lights off, how long our showers are, um, what, you know, do we switch on the, the, the geyser um, um, for 24 hours or do we switch on, when do we switch on, et cetera, et cetera. bit of a challenging phase, of course, because yeah. it required that all, all of us as a family have chores, had chores allocated to us as individual family members. And that responsibility would mean, for example, if you haven't switched off the geyser when you're supposed to switch on, then our energy consumption is still high. But if you haven't switched it back on, we're all going to have a cold shower the following yeah. morning. Yeah, sure. So it's just kind of really, was quite fun to do with it with the kids. Well, actually. it's fun, but also quite bonding, um, because I suppose in some ways you all sort of monitor each other and everybody's in this together. I mean, I quite like the idea of it being a, a family thing. Um, one of the things you mentioned, you've been in your home for about 12 years, yes. and this is an initiative of the Green Building Council. Now, you know, if you're starting from scratch, if you're building your house from scratch, you can accommodate all the extra things. You know, you can mm. accommodate the solar panels, you can accommodate the, the rainwater harvesting, the grey water uh, recycling, etc., etc. I don't know how old your house is, but mm. it, does it require to be sort of retrofitted with any of these things? Yes, I mean, it, it does require that. I mean, it's, an, it's a kind of like an oldish house, but it has been redesigned, but it still has the old core part of the house, which was built in 1943, for example. And one of the overwhelming things about uh, turning your home into a, green, in, into a green home is that you don't know which products to invest in, whether that product is sustainable for you as a household, whether it fits your budget, but also, not only whether it fits your budget, but also whether it's appropriate for your home. Because there's a number of, of these products out there, so it's quite... Um, when you say products, what do, what do you mean? Um, you know, what sort of solar gear do you put in? Okay. Where do you buy it from? Which one is appropriate? What is the best position for it on your roof? That's, that sort of thing. Do you need, you know, a heat pump, a, 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 you know, a, a, a solar panel on your roof, etc., etc.? Do you need all of that advice to be able to then make, because it's not a light investment, to be able to make the right investment using the appropriate project, product that has longevity in the market? So, don't, so, for example, if you were turning your green home today, you need to know that what you've bought today that will help your home to be green will still be the same product that will be able to sustain you going forward. 
because it is an investment. Yeah, yeah, it's an investment. It's a sort of a, it's an emotional investment, isn't it? You know, it means that you've got to sort of really commit to it because you can buy as many products as you like, but it's a mental readjustment. I mean, it's something that you've all had to sort of rethink your your daily habits. In terms of daily habits, what have been the biggest challenges? I mean, you know, huge challenges that suddenly everybody um, is going to have cold showers, you know, not the sort of challenge you particularly want. But has there been anything that for you has been a real issue to try and get your head around? I think any behavioural change that needs to happen really has to start with discipline. And I think the biggest challenge has been that discipline. You know, switch on the lights, switch off the lights. Switch on the geezer, switch off the geezer. Be able to recycle your, 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 your rubbish in such a way that you don't just put it all in one lump. You separate um, so that you can recycle what needs to be recycled and organic waste goes into your compost and reduce. In fact, we have reduced our, 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 our uh, you know, uh, what was normally our, our, you know, our rubbish bin, which was quite huge, to very little right now. Because everything that we do now is, is, is able to be reused and recycled. But it does mean that if, when you are recycling, you have to wash some of your stuff. For example, if you open a can of, let's say, tomato paste, instead of just throwing it in the, out in the bin, you rinse it so that the next person will have to go into your rubbish to be able to put it in the right place in terms of recycling. doesn't have to go through a lot of yes, mess to yes. make it happen. No, I totally hear that. Yeah. It's when you, when you have to wash out the margarine tub and you think, yeah, oh, that's why, it. <laughs> why am I doing this? But, but, so it's the right thing to do. What have been... has has everybody taken, you know, your husband's really and the, and the kids, has everybody sort of taken to it? I mean, I mentioned that you're all monitoring each other. Yes. Is everybody um, taking on a particular role? They have. I mean, they have. I mean, my son is very is very keen to be the manager, for example, of mm. uh, um, um, how we use our fireplace, which has been an old fireplace. Now we have the lucky, uh, uh, well, the lucky family who, have, who has a new one, which is much more energy con efficient it uses pellets um, in sense of, instead of wood but you need to monitor that and use it well in well so he's appointed himself that um, he's also appointed himself the, the the because he's the one he's he's 17 years old he takes out the garbage on every Tuesday he's the one who then says if it's not recycled I'm not taking out it out so <laughs> he so so that has also helped so we've, we've, we've all of us as a family as family members we've been able to contribute because of that but yeah. also because we have uh, i would say an extended family of friends etc cetera, etc cetera, who are also as enthusiastic about what we're doing as we are ourselves so we have that re-energizing energy that we get constantly yeah. as we i mean at work for example my colleagues are enthusiastically behind what we're doing um, as a family so they, that also helps a lot Absolutely, but I'm thinking, you know, it's quite easy to become a green bore. <laughs> you know what I mean? When you, this is with you all the time, and as I say, the spotlight is on you, so you've got to, to deliver. Well, Bolelo, it's been fabulous, and I, and I, it sounds like you're probably learning a whole lot of life skills as well, um, all of you, you know. Yes. So it's really been quite something. People can track how it's going on the website. Is it mygreenhome.org.za? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, it's my green, um, my green home SA. My Green Home okay. um, And we are producing a number of webisodes um, that you can then watch in terms of our journey as well. So I think there's already two up on the site that will then give you comprehensively um, a, a story about where we're starting, who we are as a family, what we're currently doing. Okay. Yeah. And that, that, the links to that on the My Green Home? Yes, they are. Okay. They are. Fantastic. They well, are. 
go and turn a light off and yes. <laughs> put the kettle on. <laughs> well, I'm talking one. to you in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. Thank, <clears throat> excuse me. Thank you very much. It's absolutely you fascinating. So and wish you every success at you and all the family with that project. Lovely. Take yeah. care. Thank you so much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Makalima Ngoena Gingoena. She is part of the family that's taking part in the My Green Home. Well, check it out. Check out. Have a look at the website. It's mygreenhomesa.org. MyGreenHomeSA.org.za will be checking up and finding out how they're getting along. Stay with us, it's the Enviro Show. The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. Well, next up here on the Enviro Show, it's uh, time for our forage feature, and uh, it's a feature when we take a look into the background of one specific food, where and how it grows, its sustainability, its nutrition, as much as we can possibly find out about that particular food. And don't forget, if there's a particular food that you'd like to know a little bit more about, let us know. Pop us a mail. We're at enviro at safm.co.za. Enviro at safm.co.za. If you want to pick up the phone, chat to young Kim right now. Give her, give her some thoughts. It's 0892 uh, 2010. Well, what we're looking at tonight is bananas. And we're going to be talking to Roy Plath, who's been farming bananas at the Umbahamba estate since 1979. And I'm thinking now, how many bananas has he grown in all those years? Gee whiz, that's a lot of bananas. But even more importantly, or perhaps not uh, more importantly, but equally importantly, is that he's created so many jobs along the way. Well, we've got him on the line to tell us all. Roy, are you with us? Yes, I'm with you. Nick. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much, Roy, in Mpumalanga, incidentally, aren't you? That's correct. Um, any idea how many bananas you've grown since 1979? <laughs> you've been keeping no, a tally. No, not at all, but thousands of tons. Thousands of tons. How many, um, would it be right to say how many hectares are under banana, or how many banana trees have you got? How many? Well, we, we, grow, we would rather measure them in hectares. We, we personally, our company in Barbary States grows about 2,000 hectares of bananas. And uh, it's a very intensive um, a tropical crop which is grown here in South Africa in our subtropical areas which are limited in South Africa. They have to be frost free and as tropical as possible. And you may know that those areas are limited to the Kamati Port area, uh, Burgess Hall, Hazy View, Kripasol area is one area and then to a lesser extent Levubu and even lesser extent KZN on the coast where it's too windy, actually, and salty, and so on. But the best area is Kamadi Put, or the main growing area, Kamadi Put, and Hazy View, Burgers Hall. Given that we've got such limited areas where bananas can grow, are we able to supply the whole of South Africa ourselves, or do we have to, dare I say it, import any? No, we don't import any because of the distance to other substantial... Yes, we do from local SADC countries like Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and so on, which, which are actually putting pressure on our local market because they have free access. But we don't uh, import from the traditional tropical areas like, um, you know, mid-Africa and so on. Um, so, but our, our banana production in South Africa fits almost hand in glove with our South African needs where, where banana farmers can still survive if they, they do some, some hard, diligent work. But uh, as I say, under tremendous pressure from uh, external growers like Mozambique because they have much lower wages and various other lower costs. 
Yeah. So um, it's subtropical areas, so and, and frost-free, it's got to be really, sort of really, really hot. But if I'm not mistaken, you can pretty much buy bananas the year round. Does that mean yes, that... Yes, we harvest bananas right through the year in okay. South Africa. And so we have different areas have a slightly different peak period, but we harvest any banana uh, farming operation in South Africa would be harvesting 12 months a year, but with lesser at varying times. So how, how does that work? I mean, is there not a sort of season when bananas are, are fruiting? No, not really. The, the banana plant is a, a different creature in some respects. It's vegetative reproduction. So you plant the mother plant and then the follow, follow suckers grow out from the base of that and you select one to follow the other kind of thing and, and they produce right through the year in, in that way. It, but with a slowdown at certain times of the year, like in winter when it's, when it's very cold, although other areas tend to come in quite a lot in that period. So we have a relatively well-spread production because of these various areas, but we produce on each farm right through the year, as I say. Hmm. Are they very thirsty plants? I mean, I'm imagining perhaps not if they're growing in subtropical areas, or are they quite tolerant yes. if there's no, no rain? No, they're not tolerant of, of drought, and they need a lot of water because it's tropical. The, the roots are very succulent and soft, and sort of almost as thick as your little finger. And uh, the banana plant is almost palm-like, so it's all succulent, leafy, uh, very moisture plant. So it's not a hard wood by any means. So, And because it's a genuine tropical crop, it, it needs actually ideally watering daily. We water our bananas on each orchard every day with computerized irrigation and so on. Mm. So you don't, you don't, um, for, I mean, they're not, there's no hothouse banana growing going on, is there? Very little. There, there are some, some attempts at that, but it's hugely expensive because the bananas stand like six meters or five, four, six meters high, depending which cultivar. So that's very expensive and, and one would say over the top in terms of capitalization. How many cultivars are there? I was sort of kind of thought a banana was Mainly a banana. two, but, um, it, they're all a subspecies of this Cavendish group of bananas, as they're known. So they're not really a whole host of cultivars yeah. like some other crops like maize and so on. One of the things about bananas, though, is that they, if you've ever had one in your, in your kitchen, they are extremely vulnerable. They seem not to last terribly long. I mean, they seem to have quite specific conditions. Sometimes when you buy them, they're very green. Other times they're sort of way over the top and ready to be go to the compost. Transportation, are there very specific uh, requirements for them? Yes, it's, it's a really difficult crop and, and very intensive. I mean, you be, you're harvesting from the field. Ideally, you want to be packing in a packhouse where you can immediately cool off the pulp temperature into cold rooms. Um, if you're doing ripening on the farm, those cold rooms would be kept within a range of temperature. They would be ripened over a five to seven day period or thereabouts and transported in refrigerated trucks. You don't want the cold 
the, the cold chain to be broken and escalating or varying temperatures to be, all those factors affect the shelf life. But yes, it is a very perishable crop and or fruit, and it, it won't last much more than like four or five days in, in your house depending where you keep it in, in the house. Um, I, I remember once somebody saying you never put a banana in the fridge. That's right. Is that uh, true? That, that's, that's not a good idea because they don't like such cold temperatures. And then also in a very warm kitchen with, a, with the oven going and what have you would also reduce quite substantially the shelf life. What else do they not like? What is their sort of pests or predators, aside from monkeys? You know, what 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 are your, um, you know, the Achilles heel? Not not so bad in the subtropics here because our our winters are quite cold. So a lot of the 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 worst problems that they experience in the tropics are written off with the cold weather. But we do have um, various insects that would come and creep on the skins and nibble on the skins and and so on and and those we have to treat in one way or another now in our specific case we happen to be a proper organic grower which makes that that even more difficult mm. because we we insist on not using any toxic chemicals whatsoever in our entire growing production system so you have to be awake with various things and always looking for acceptable products that are human-friendly and not toxic to use in, in our specific cases, I mentioned. So, but then you're putting on a bunch cover. You've seen these blue or white bunch covers, and they generally mm. keep the insects out and they keep the leaves off from chafing on them. But various other problems are things like a light hailstorm or, or a, a strong hailstorm will wipe out bananas quite readily. Um, so we we open to all kinds of weather, the cold in winter, harsh winds or hail in the summer, and, and the like. Yeah, gosh. So interesting that you don't spray them at all. I mean, unlike, you know, fruits where you, you eat the whole thing, like an apple or a pear, yeah. with a banana, you're going to take off the peel anyway. Um, yeah. What, you know, sometimes they say, I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this, but, you know, they often say that all the goodness is in the skin, um, which is why you shouldn't really peel potatoes. Is there any goodness in the banana skin? Yes, I believe there are some uses, but I must be honest, we haven't looked into that much. But I have noticed um, on various uh, articles, having looked up on the net, that there are various uh, things that the skin can be used for, particularly the inner side of the skin. And and uh, there are products, and of course bananas can be dried um, and various other sweets and uh, I mean there's even uh, alcoholic drinks made from bananas but they know predominantly there for their fresh eating and high in potassium which is good for the heart so people with heart ailments usually are, are pointed towards bananas and then we probably most of us know that the best of sportsmen are readily eating bananas before yeah. and during sports you, you often see tennis players eating yeah. bananas yes indeed because they are the most immediate energy booster of the natural uh, uh, um, fruits yeah. available to the body so well, viva the banana roy thank you very much it sounds like uh, it sounds like you're very passionate about your bananas which you, which is which is wonderful and lovely that they're organic and even more lovely is that you've managed to create a huge amount of jobs around the banana industry 
So thank you very much. And uh, I'm going to give out your website, if I may, and people can have a little look and find out more about bananas. So thank you very much. All the best to you, Thank Thank you. Roy Plath, and if you'd like to find out a little bit more, they are up there in Mpumalanga. It's Umbahamba. It's, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, U-M-B-H-A-B-A, U-M-B-H-A-B-A dot biz, if you'd like to find out more. And you're listening to The Enviro Show. The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. And don't forget that The Enviro Show is podcast, so if there's anything that you've heard, maybe you'd like to hear that whole banana story over again, because I thought it was totally, utterly fascinating. Check out, out uh, check out our website. It's www.safm.co.za. Safm.co.za. Well, in our green goodie in a minute, we're going to be hearing about uh, how a solar power project in Daar is throwing light on the surrounding communities in more ways than one. But first, let's find out about the Centre uh, for Alternative Energy at the Vaal University of Technology, because what they've been doing recently is doing, doing some research into ways of bringing light into communities that are way off the grid. Well, to explain exactly what they're doing and why and how, we have Professor Christo Pinar on the line. He's the Director of Institute for Applied Electronics. Hi, Professor. Good evening, Nancy, and nice good evening to the uh, listeners. Thank you very much. Won't you just tell us a little bit firstly about the Centre for Alternative Energy? Has it been going for long, and what's your mandate? Well, uh, Nancy, we started about 14 years ago, 10 to 14 years ago, uh, not concentrating on what we're con- concentrating on now, but uh, we started to uh, deliver uh, or develop power supplies for, for the telecommunications industry, uh, off-grid power supplies, and uh, we, we started with, with fuel cells, hydrogen, solar, and so on. And uh, this developed into uh, the project that we're busy now, and that is to, well, let, let, us, let me first of all say, the motto or one of our goals at the Center for Alternative Energy is to improve the quality of life. And uh, we now focus on, on rural communities mm. without electricity. How many people are there who are living off the grid in South Africa? Any idea? Nancy, uh, let's, let's make an estimate of about 20% of our population is not grid-tied. Hmm. That's, that's, a, that's a huge number. I, I, one would imagine that perhaps that's shrinking quite fast. Are we, are we reaching those? Or, or this 20%, they're likely to be off the grid for some time? Nancy, that, that, is, that is our focus. You know, mm. some of these communities will never be tied to the grid because it's just too far away. It is not economical for ESCOM to, to uh, you know, uh, erect power lines to, to those communities. So it is, it is quite difficult, and, and we concentrate on them because, uh, you know, without electricity, we, we all know what happened a few years ago. When, when we uh, ex- all experienced, uh, uh, you know, lights off and lights out and so mm. on. And, and that was quite difficult. Now, just imagine a small community or a household without electricity all the time. And that is what we are addressing at the moment. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge problem. So what's the answer? I mean, one immediately thinks of sort of solar panels and that's it. But have you got something a little bit more um, practical? Yes. Let, let me explain to you what we do. We harvest the, the sunlight, and, and, and we're lucky in South Africa. We have, a, have an abundance of, of uh, sunlight. So we harvest the sunlight uh, by uh, making use of uh, photovoltaic, photovoltaic, uh, voltaic panels, 
and uh, they convert the sunlight into electricity, DC current. And then what we do is, during the daytime, we, we supply, you know, the normal things like a computer and, uh, and so on with electricity. But the problem is during the night. Now, during the day, the excess uh, sunlight that we have or excess electricity that we have, we, we use that and we convert that into hydrogen. Hydrogen is a gas, and we uh, store the gas in, in canisters, you know, big tanks. And during the night, we take the, the hydrogen, we put it through a fuel cell. Remember the word fuel cell? I'll come back to that mm -hmm. now. Where, um, we put it through a fuel cell, and the fuel cell generates electricity. And the only byproduct is pure water. So it's environmental friendly as well. Now, the fuel cell is a device. If you supply it with electricity and water, it can generate uh, electricity. Uh, uh, do you understand what? Uh, sorry, uh, it can generate elect uh, hydrogen. Okay. And also, it can be used in the opposite direction as well. So, if you supply it with hydrogen, it can generate electricity. So, it's almost. Uh, you know, uh, during the day, we use a fuel cell in the one direction, and at night, we use it in a different direction. During the day, we generate hydrogen. Tonight, we use the hydrogen, we put it into the same fuel cell, and we generate electricity. So we solve a big problem. Uh, we can use, uh, uh, we, you know, batteries, normal batteries, but obviously a battery is the thing that you have to maintain. You have to replace it from time to time. So it's not so easy to... To replace the batteries is quite expensive. Now, with, with our system, once it's going, you, you can just add water, but you also generate pure water during the, the night time. So you can, you can uh, uh, use the same water over and over again. And from time to time, you can replenish the water. Do you, I'm just thinking about the 20% of, of the population who are living in areas where they are, are off the grid. It sounds like there would need to be sort of centres of, of, you know, the work that you're doing um, where, that people would need to manage. Are there, yeah. are there sort of pockets of these sort of photovoltaic panels all over the place? Yes, yes. Now, what, what, what we'll do is... What we do is we concentrate, you know, on, on, on the power supply for, for one community. And uh, for, for that community, we, we only uh, need about one kilowatt of power. So we don't need vast, you know, many, many of these uh, solar panels. We can use five to ten of those, and they will be enough to supply the community with electricity during the day and also the hydrogen during the night. Is it up and running? I mean, is it working? Or, yes, yes, yeah. it's working. Um, we would uh, we'd, uh, uh, have a, a prototype or a proto-plant, mm. and it's been going for more than a year now. The only problem at the moment is it's very expensive. It's still very expensive. You know, in the fuel cell, there is a, um, a, what we call a membrane. Now, the membrane is the expensive thing. Now, a few years ago, Together with Dutch University, we developed our own membrane. And that will go into production uh, this month. And by, let's say, in a year or two, we will have our own fuel cell, which is much, much cheaper than the commercial one. 
Just lastly, certainly we, we've run out of time on this one, but I'm just thinking, is it, it, it is expensive, and are the people who are off the grid thinking, this is just going to be a temporary measure because eventually we're going to get on the grid. I know, I know you're saying it's, for some people it's, it's not likely to happen, but that would be what people are aspiring to. So this money and energy that you're putting into producing this, is it, is it going to be permanent? Yes, it can be permanent, yes, Absolutely. Absolutely, and we'll duplicate it, and and we'll supply those people with, with with electricity for for as long as as we as, as the the fuel cell can last, and the the prediction is that the fuel cell can last for for many 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 years. Expensive is the government putting any money into it? Well, we we're at the moment uh, sponsored by Telcom, by Eskom, by you know uh, MTech here in Vienaheng, and. Um, we also get uh, money uh, indirectly from the government through the National Research mm. Foundation, NRF. Well, it sounds like it's, as I say, throwing light in, in areas where it certainly needs to be taken. So thank you very much, Professor. I'm going to give out your website if anybody would like to investigate a little bit more and perhaps see the prototype. It's www.vut, that's a Val University of Technology, hyphen research.ac.za, vut hyphen research.ac. Professor Christo Pinar, thank you very much. Thanks. Good night. Thank Good you night. very much. Well, how interesting. Uh, I hope you followed that. If you didn't, check out the site because there's, there's a lot more to be seen there. And kind of a, a, in a similar vein, and lastly in our Green Goodie project, into R in the Northern Cape, it's said that the, that province by the year 2020 will be the country's largest producer of renewable energy as a result of the very high levels of solar radiation there. Um, and it's also been chosen uh, by the uh, by the government as the um, it's renewable energy independent power producer procurement program is is based there. And to tell us a little bit more about that and what it's doing for the community there, we've got Mark Pickering, who's the general manager of Da'ar Solar Power, on the line. Hi, Mark. Hi, Nancy. Good evening. Nice to have you with us. Thank you very much. Were you able to hear a little bit about what uh, Professor Pinar was I saying? I did. It uh, mm. sounds like a very interesting technology. Yes, yes. It sort of feels like we need to put the two of you together. <laughs> <laughs> tell us a little bit about Da'ar, which seems like, you know, it's the poster boy province mm. for, for solar energy because of its solar radiation. Yes, well, South Africa's got some of the best solar radiation in the world. I think only the uh, the deserts in Chile have more sunshine than can we you have. Very, can you very briefly just explain what's meant by we have very high levels of solar radiation? Well, it's a couple of things. One is um, the, the state of the atmosphere uh, above the ground. Uh, and so how much cloud cover there is and how clear the sky is. Um, determines how much sun actually reaches the ground. Okay. So you have a very high proportion of uh, cloud-free days in the Northern Cape, which is why it's such a dry area. Okay, so you've got a, a pilot project there. Just explain what's going on. Actually, it's more than a pilot. It's, mm. uh, it's a very large um, installation of solar panels. Uh, if you were to start at one corner and keep walking... It would be three and a half kilometers later, you'd, you'd reach the other corner. That's a very big array. It is. It is mm. a massive array. It's um, pretty much a square kilometer of, of panels, and they're all um, hooked up to inverters, and they're exporting power to the grid. Um, and this, is, this is one of the first such projects built in the country, and in fact, in the continent, um, as part of that program that you mentioned, uh, which government has... Um, run and 
absolutely to the government's credit, it does it does put South Africa on the global map for renewable energy. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things about this particular project is that it's it's having such a positive effect on the communities, and not just by bringing light. Just just explain. That's right. Um, in addition to being a national uh, supplier of electricity, uh, these renewable projects um, are located in rural areas, and government has has required them to commit to a whole lot of social development and enterprise development obligations. So we will spend probably about 5 million rand a year in the area of DAR on uh, social programs. And we're largely going to focus on education because we see education as the key to unlocking uh, the cycle of poverty. So these projects, are they, are they linked in what way? Is it just that you're spending money there, or are they in any way linked to the, to the array? Well, some are linked uh, in the sense that um, we, we need skills in order to operate these plants. Uh, the industry as a whole needs um, technically trained people. So we will be running scholarship programs to, to train technicians, solar technicians. We also have a wind farm in Jeffreys Bay and we'll be training wind turbine technicians. Uh, so these are tertiary qualifications. And uh, once they're trained, hopefully they will apply to work on our plants. How many people are, are, are actually involved? So, uh, the most uh, jobs are created during the construction phase. Um, during construction, just to, to give you a sense, we, we had to install about 170,000 panels the power plant. Uh, so that takes a, a lot of people. Uh, at peak, we had uh, 480 people working at the plant. Mm. And about 70% of those were drawn from the local community. On average, over the 15-month um, construction period, we had about 250 per month. So that's a big boost to, to a small town like yeah, the Ark. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, aside from the job creation, it's also um, openings peop opening people's minds to the whole idea of alternative energy and the whole idea, uh, the concept of, of us having to live in a slightly different way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you can see this really touches people's lives. And uh, besides the economic development spin-off, it changes the way people think about energy. Um, and this is just the beginning. As we move our, our country away from just depending on coal towards a more diverse set of supply options. Plans for the future? Well, government uh, uh, is really the, the ultimate sponsor of this program. So they, w they have committed to uh, a 20-year target and, and will be running an, an auction every year for, for the next 20 years, hopefully. And uh, our company, Globalic, we're an international um, private power producer, uh, we hope to participate in, in every round in the future. We see South Africa as a very attractive investment destination, as a very well-designed program, probably one of the best programs in the world at this stage. So we, we are very much committed to, to being here, to, uh, to putting more projects together and to bid into future rounds. Mm. And it's an injection of energy, quite literally, in, in the Northern Cape that was so very badly needed. Yes, I mean, the Northern Cape is, has, has really won the lion's share of projects to date, and it's likely to continue to do so because it just has such a fantastic natural resource. 
wind projects are mainly going to the eastern Cape at mm. the moment because they have the wind resource there. Isn't it interesting about South Africa that we have all these sort of natural resources? We've been so used to sort of digging under the ground to get yeah. utilize all those sort of resources. Meanwhile, there they all are up in the air, in the bright blue sky and, uh, and in the wind. Mark Pickering, thank you very much. Once again, I'm going to give out your website if anybody would like to check it out and maybe come and visit and have a look. So thank you very much for your time. Take uh, care. We also have a Facebook page. Oh, okay. Do a, do a search for the R Solar. Okay. And uh, we have a very active community. Okay. On Facebook. In actual fact, I think that we've already put it up on our Facebook page, so I think we okay. might have already made the connection and made the link. All right. Lovely. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You so check it out. It's Da'ar Solar Power, and you can find them on Facebook or otherwise check their site, which is da'arsolar.co.za. And if you've missed anything, don't forget you can find us by uh, podcast, the Enviro Show's podcast on uh, SAFM website, which is www.safm.co.za.